Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll probably mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast. And to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be about maximizing your chances of pregnancy in fertility treatment. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring is now offering a savings card for their endometrin vaginal insert. This instant savings card offers up to $50 savings each month on your endometrin prescription for eligible patients. You can ask your doctor for more details. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. On that newsletter, we let you know about the latest developments in the world of infertility and adoption. We also tell you about the upcoming week's blog topic and show topic and give you the opportunity to submit questions for the show, things such as that. Please join our merry little group and sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week. A recent blog that you might enjoy was a riff I did on the old Jeff Foxworthy comedy routine, You Know You're a Redneck When. Ours was You Know You're Infertile When. It's um, uh, We uh, collected uh, uh, in our online communities, uh, we did a we did a game of this for lasted almost a week, and people submitted their favorites. And it's both funny and poignant, mostly funny. So we'd love to have you uh, join in, share your own uh, ending to the You Know You're Infertile win. Uh, you can do that uh, at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm bank. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are recognized as a scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have seven offices in New Jersey. They also maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average, and they offer the latest and validated technical solutions to help hopeful patients increase their chances for success in the shortest time possible. Fairfax Cryobank, Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. And last but certainly not least, we have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been pioneers in offering embryo donation services to clients throughout the world through its Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. Over 350 babies have been born through this program. 
Today's show is a re-airing of one of our classics, or, or maybe I should say timeless shows. We're going to be talking today about maximizing your chances of pregnancy in fertility treatment. How many months should you stay on Clomid? How many rounds of IUIs or artificial insemination should you do? How many cycles of IVF is reasonable before moving to donor egg? What's the best way to manage your fertility dollars and still get pregnant? Because let's remember the reality is many people are paying for it out of pocket, so managing a budget is part of the reality. Our guest will be Dr. Allison Zimmon. She is a reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF, and Dr. Samantha Pfeiffer. She is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. I hope you enjoy this podcast as as much as I do. Dr. Zyman, I want to start, uh, I think it would be helpful if we start with an explanation of what the standard protocol has been in the past for the average infertility patient, assuming her, her infertility is female factor or unexplained. And you can put as many qualifiers as you, as you want in, because I realize that when I say the average infertility patient, you're probably wanting to snicker there, because there probably isn't really an average. But nonetheless, I think it would be helpful uh, if we, we get a baseline for what we're talking about. Well, it depends on the the historical perspective you take on this, but traditionally uh, some of the first steps into uh, treatment for someone who has unexplained infertility, that is normal sperm, normal egg function, normal tube function, a normal uterine cavity, would be something more straightforward like we're talking about today, which would be medicated uh, inseminations or medicated uh, treatment with uh, timed intercourse. And that would be the option of either the fertility pills, which would be Clomid or some of the aromatase inhibitors, or a more aggressive therapy might be the gonadotropins, which which we know of as follicle-stimulating hormone or FSH. We also, I will talk about this in a minute, but we also often call them injectables. That's how a lot of our audience knows of them because those are all injectable medications. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, right. Gotcha. And then um, and then moving to IVF, would that be the, the right. next? Yeah, okay. Correct. Usually people do not typically go directly to IVF. That's not been the mainstay of treatment historically. And I think in the past, and if we're talking about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there was uh, a focus on more conservative methods, that is more cycles of the fertility pill or more cycles of the injectables combined with inseminations before thinking about moving to IVF. Okay. Now, one of the things that uh, that uh, we uh, advertise the show as talking about medicated IUIs or going straight to IVF, and one of the things that was interesting is that we most of our questions came in um, asking questions about some of the uh, uh, less invasive earlier or whatever the word is, uh, you might uh, the adjective is uh, steps of the cycle. So let me let's take a, a few moments to talk some about the um, uh, the. the um, uh, uh, Clomid or uh, clomiphene citrate or, or, or letrozole or some of those. Here's a question from Carrie. She says, how many months is the usual suggested time to try Clomid? We are just beginning an infertility treatment and haven't gone to an infertility doctor yet. My husband's a teacher and I'm a student, so money is a huge issue, and Clomid is cheap and available from my gynecologist. We tried last month but didn't get pregnant. I assume she means we mm-hmm. tried Clomid last month and didn't get pregnant. Um, Dr. Pfeiffer, yeah. can you address the uh, how long should somebody stay at this level where you're trying, um, in her case, she tried Clomiphene citrate, brand name Clomid? Well, I think that you, know, you have to look at 
the age of the the woman because that's really one of the most important factors. We know that um, fertility decreases after the age of 35. So we really like to think of women who are in their mid-30s or older as a group that we don't want to delay effective treatment in, whereas in younger women in their 20s, um, you have more time. And so I think that um, that's one of the factors we look at. Then you look at, you know, does Clomid by itself actually improve conception rates in women who have um, unexplained infertility. And I think it's different if you're treating a woman that doesn't have regular menstrual cycles and using Clomid to make them ovulate. And in that case, Clomid is very effective. In women who have regular menstrual cycles and are already ovulating in a predictable fashion, using Clomid by itself has not been shown to improve pregnancy rates over just having intercourse, timed intercourse by itself. So I think that there really is not a role for using Clomid by itself, um, and it does not has not been shown to improve pregnancy rates in couples who have unexplained infertility. Um, I think that for a couple that has been trying on their own for a while and are maybe are not ready to move to more aggressive therapies, and if the woman is young, then um, certainly the practice has been to try Clomid for up to three months. Um, some couples will conceive on Clomid. Um, I think there really is not a role for using it for more than three months. And for an older woman, this three months of Clomid can actually just delay um, doing more effective therapies and sort of waste time. So I think um, you have to really look at the age of the woman and other circumstances. Well, and that's a good qu- that leads to a question we have from Lou. She says, Clomid worked when I was 34, and we have a beautiful son who is now almost four. We tried without help for the last two years and have now tried with Clomid for three months straight with no pregnancy. Does its effectiveness decrease with age? Is her first question or second question is, what can I do to increase the effectiveness? And, Dr. Pfeiffer, you've just mentioned that the effectiveness of Clomid, uh, I think I understood you to say, does decrease with age. Was, was Did I understand you correctly? Well, I think fertility dec- decreases with age. And so, you know, you are no more likely to get pregnant with Clomid and intercourse than you are um, without using any Clomid if you're having regular ovulatory cycles. So I think... In the case of this woman, probably she had been trying for a long time and has not conceived. The Clomid did not help her. Um, it's you know unclear that the Clomid helped her the first time. That may have been luck. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. certainly having tried it, having it, it's not worked after three months, I think she needs to seek advice from a fertility specialist who can guide her as to what other op- options are available to her to move forward. And, and one of the messages that we preach here a fair amount at Creating a Family is is to not spend too much time before you get to a specialist because time is not, especially in, in, in Lou's case where it looks like she's 38 now. She may be a little older, I can't tell, but just kind of adding her numbers up. Time is not on your side. So at some point we... It's fine to start with your gynecologist, but you need to more rapidly move to a specialist in order to keep your options open for success. I mean, the guidelines, um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has some guidelines for the evaluation of um, female infertility. And, And we stress that if a woman is under 35, 
she can try for a year on her own, and if she's not conceived, then it's appropriate to seek care from a specialist. If, however, she's over the age of 35, then we recommend she seek evaluation after six months of trying because of the issue of fertility decreasing, and you want to be use your time effectively and not realize that you've wasted time. So the older the woman, we do encourage um, an evaluation a lot sooner. Dr. Zyman, Lou's last question is, what can I do to increase the effectiveness, and, and she means of, of taking Clomid? Is there anything that, and let's uh, broaden her question, so she is in her late 30s, it appears, but in general, let's uh, regardless of the age of the woman, are there things that you can do that would increase the effectiveness with the, of course, uh, at this point we're assuming that everybody is, is if you're on Clomid, you're timing your intercourse. So excluding that or, or including that, but we all know that. Uh, is there anything you can do to increase the effectiveness of, of Clomid or clomiphene, clomiphene citrate? Well, not, not, uh, not appreciably so. I mean, I would like to add to you know her first question about how long to continue the Clomid and, and does, it, does, it, does your success change with age? In that we did a very nice study at um, you know from our, our site at Boston IVF where we looked at cumulative pregnancy rates in patients who had done Clomid and we found that no matter what their age was, they did very well in the first and second cycle of Clomid and that the chance for success with pregnancy went down in cycle number three, four, all the way out to nine. And we did see that this drop-off in pregnancy rate per cycle as you got further out the number of cycles you did, in other words, cycle three, four, five, and six of Clomid, that the, the, the age had a tremendous factor and that their, their chance for success was even lower. So I would be concerned about trying to come up with methods to try to increase the effectiveness of Clomid if she's already done two to three cycles, and I would encourage her to think about perhaps other options. Now, she does mention that the cost is certainly a problem for her, and I would assume if she's doing this under the auspices of uh, a fertility center or her physician or a gynecologist, that they're giving her all the instructions, um, like you suggested, timing intercourse and making sure you get the right ovulatory time and, and taking the appropriate dose. And all, the other thing to just make sure that Clomid would be as successful as it could be would, that, would be that a whole fertility evaluation had been done to make sure there aren't any other factors that might be contributing to her fertility potential. And an important part of that may even be just her egg reserve testing because sometimes that isn't done and people jump right to Clomid and it turns out that, that they're even less likely um, than their age match peers to do well with Clomid in, in a situation of decreased egg reserve. Yeah, and what we find, and this is not necessarily scientific, so I'm curious to know if it's across the board, but what we find is that most of the people who are who send us questions and are asking us questions and are utilizing our site and have are just have just started off and are maybe just taking the beginnings of taking Clomid, um, they have yet to seek fertility treatment uh, by a specialist. This is often, I think they're most often getting this through their gynecologist. Um, and, and I'm assuming that that's across the board that people at that part, are we finding that people might be staying too long at their gynecologist and attempting it with timed intercourse with uh, Clomid? Dr. Pfeiffer, I'm just curious, is that across the board or is that just something, a peculiarity of our audience? No, I think it's, you know, I think there's a certain um, population everywhere that, you know, would be more inclined to uh, view 
what the infertility specialists do is very aggressive and, and artificial, and I think that's mm-hmm. rather exactly. intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, um, you know, the gynecologist plays a very helpful role in getting the basic testing done and, and initiating therapy for many women who are maybe reluctant to seek out the care of a specialist. Um, so I think we see that across the board. Um, you know, on the other hand, there are many women out there who, you know, have um, maybe not been trying that long and go immediately to seek out the care of a specialist. So I, I think it depends on um, many factors and maybe availability of a specialist. Um, and maybe a gynecologist is very familiar with a lot of fertility treatments and feels comfortable initiating these things. So I think that, you know, is often the case. But I yeah. think... We do have to counsel patients that if you haven't been successful in a defined a period of time, then moving on and seeking the expertise of a specialist is advisable. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because again, our, knowing that there's your fertile years don't go on forever, so we can't waste too much time, and a lot depends on the the woman's age. Before we move off of these initial steps in a fertility workup uh, and fertility treatment, uh, I do want to talk about, uh, Dr. Simon, you mentioned that that, uh, clomiphene citrate is one. There are some other type of these, I think you called them fertility pills, um, but uh, what is the general distinction between clomiphene citrate, again, brand name Clomid, and other forms of, of the initial the pills that might be used at the beginning. Right. Well, they both they both work by somewhat similar mechanisms in that they interfere with the brain's ability to sense estrogen. So Clomid interacts with the brain's ability to feel the estrogen in your system or, or respond to it. And the other class of medications are called aromatase inhibitors, and they briefly block the production of estrogen. In both cases, the brain responds by by sensing that there's no estrogen around, and so it sends a stronger signal to the ovary, a push to the ovary, to help you super ovulate or ovulate potentially more than one egg or have a stronger response. For some women, and we we discussed this earlier, some women don't ovulate, and this is the very push they need to help them ovulate. So the other class of medications, the aromatase inhibitors, um, one common uh, name of this uh, class within this class is letrozole, and uh, it is um, very similar to clomid in the way you take it. Both you take for five days early in your menstrual cycle. It's timed with the period, and for both you can have symptoms associated with decreased estrogen in your system because this is how they work. So you can have hot flashes, maybe a little bit of irritability. In general, people feel that the side effect profile is a little bit better with the second class, the aromatase inhibitors. Uh, the the outcomes are very similar and the you know, each each prescribing physician would decide whether a clomid or the other class of medications is more appropriate for for each patient, but they would be used, uh, one or the other would be used unless there was a side effect issue, and then you might change from one drug to the next. But it doesn't tend to be the, the case that you would do Clomid for two cycles or three cycles, and then the next step would be to do the other class for three cycles. We lump them all together in terms mm-hmm. of this being a, a the, the first or the entry approach to fertility treatment. And if one does not work, then it's not such that you would think, oh, well, if the first one doesn't work, let's move to a um, to a second one. Correct. Um, let me, and another of our reoccurring themes here 
is um, a, a, a preaching against uh, multiple birth rates or a desire to help uh, the patient community make good decisions that will help reduce the multiple birth rate. Um, so uh, it would be I need to make certain I, we talk before we leave this uh, early dis- the discussion of the early uh, steps up the treatment ladder. Uh, what is the um, multiple birth rate with either uh, uh, Clomid or Letrozole, Dr. Pfeiffer? Well, um, I think of all of the medications we have, these oral medications, Clomid and Letrozole, have a lower risk of multiples than the injectables do. Um, And I think that the whole philosophy with fertility these days is a big push to promote single baby, one healthy baby at a time. So I think that we're, as a reproductive community, we're really on board with trying to promote this concept. Um, With Clomid the multiples rate um, really seems to depend on the number of follicles that occur. And in general, the risk of twins with Clomid is maybe about 8 maybe 10% per cycle. Um, if you monitor someone and only let them attempt pregnancy, if there's two or fewer follicles, then the multiple pregnancy rate, the twin rate, is actually very low, um, significantly lower. Um, the risk of triplets with Clomid is about 0.5%, um, which is still higher than the general population. But um, I think a lot of times if we monitor people with ultrasound, we can see how many eggs are developing in response to the Clomid. And one way to decrease that multiple risk is to reduce it to only two follicles developing and not three. Um, the studies with letrozole suggest that the multiple rate may be a little bit lower with letrozole, um, which is one of the potential benefits of that medication over Clomid. Interesting. Okay, uh, but there I will I will tell you from what we hear, there are still a lot of doctors. Again, I think predominantly gynecologists, although I, I'm not, I can't really speak to that, who are not following with uh, ultrasounds to count follicles or quite uh, or. If they are doing that, uh, are not suggesting that um, the cycle be canceled, I or think that people not make uh, p- people not have intercourse. That I think that's... that is very true. Um, <clears throat> I think that one of the issues that we face in this country is that a lot of fertility services are not covered. Um, in in Europe, um, it's a very different philosophy and approach to treating the infertility patient. Um, or the patient with fertility issues. And there's a big push in Europe to have transfer of only one embryo after in vitro fertilization cycle, whereas in this country we generally put back more than one embryo and we have a much higher twin and triplet rate with all of our fertility treatments in this country compared to most of Europe. And I think, um, you know, that's something that as a provider of fertility services we struggle with. We want our patients to get pregnant um, and they're often investing a lot of um, their own resources into these treatments and want to maximize their chances of having a pregnancy. Um, so, you know, I think this is one of the one of the issues that we struggle with in how to reduce the multiples uh, risk in this country because it is it is well higher than in most of Europe and it's it's not good for the mom or the baby. Yeah, um, you know, you're you're preaching to the choir here. Uh, we are a hundred percent and on board and have certainly been. In fact, we the show that we won the International Infertility Media Award for uh, was a show that we did on reducing multiples. Um, 
But I will tell you that, uh, and I was thankful that you brought it up, money plays a huge role, and we're going to come back to talk to, about that in, in just a moment because that's the, the whole next section of our uh, – of anyway, if money matters. Uh, you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're talking about whether you should try a medicated IUI cycle or go straight to IVF. Our guests today to talk about this are Dr. Allison Simon. She is a reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF, and Dr. Samantha Pfeiffer. She is associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And unfortunately, we only have Dr. Pfeiffer for the first uh, half hour of the show. So let me uh, try to squeeze um, uh, at least one more question out before you uh, before you have to leave to go see a patient, which we understand is, is certainly you know uh, a, probably a higher value here. Although I'm not sure, I mean personally feel like that we are of very high value, but um, well, I do too. But uh, conflicts I can't avoid. But <laughs> I understand. I completely understand. Um, what do we mean, uh, Dr. Pfeiffer, by a medicated intrauterine insemination cycle? Um, are we talking about injectable insemination uh, cycle? Both. Uh, well, let's talk about both because I think there's a great deal of confusion about what we mean by medicated, whether we mean injectables or whether we mean uh, a cycle where you're actually using electrosol or Clomid. Well, I think that, you know, the I, I think it's an, always a good idea to, to talk about what you mean, and I think medicated cycle is very confusing as for the it reasons is. you stated. Yeah, we, we try not to do that because it's too confusing. So it's either the oral medication cycle or the injectable cycle, as I think many patients refer to the gonadotropin cycle. So, I mean, the differences are with the oral medication, it's much less intense monitoring, and timing of insemination can be either through ultrasound monitoring or timing with a um, ovulation trigger injection, or just timing the insemination according to an LH surge on the urine kits. So it's a lot less involved. Um, it's a lot less, you know, lower risk of multiples and less costly, um, but it's also not as successful. Um, if we look at the injectable um, cycles, combining that with insemination, um, that is a lot more intense monitoring. The medications, the injectable medications, directly stimulate the ovary to produce a number of follicles. And the problem is you don't have any control over the number of follicles that arise. Um, that's why the monitoring is so important. And um, there can be, you know, one or two or three follicles developing, which is ideal, or you can have 10, 12, 15 follicles developing, which is clearly um, not ideal because it does put you at a very high risk of having high-order multiples you know, three, four, or five babies at one time. Um, when these medications are used in a very controlled fashion, um, with you know, you can achieve development of three or four follicles, which doesn't place the uh, patient at too high risk of having triplets or quadruplets, which we clearly want to avoid. Um, so I think that, um, you know, one of the issues with the injectable medicines, if you do get too many follicles developing, you can always bail out and cancel the cycle and not go forward with either triggering ovulation or doing an insemination or having intercourse to avoid the exposure of sperm. Um, and I think for many couples, that's ideally a great idea, but it's very hard to have invested several thousand dollars in the medication and end up just walking away from it without anything to be gained. So I think that's really a dilemma for many patients. It is a very, very hard thing to uh 
to accept, uh, especially, quite frankly, because it is somewhat in the patient's control because they can have intercourse and they don't have to go to the doctor. And so the doctors not can suggest and strongly encourage them not to. Um, but it's up to the patient uh, because it's not the doctor. I mean, they, they still have the option of just, uh, normal intercourse. Before we talk about some of the disadvantages such as that, though, let me back up and say, and, and Dr. Pfeiffer, this will probably be your last question, so let me just send this to you. Okay. What We speak of med- the injectable medications. Uh, I think it would be helpful if you could give some of the names and, and, and what they're called because people, there, there is, again, confusion as to what counts for an injectable, uh, what are you injecting? You know, what, what is an injectable medicated cycle? Well, I think when we say the injectable medications, we refer to um, the class of drug um, gonadotropins, meaning that these medicines are um, the hormones that are produced by the pituitary that directly stimulate the ovary. And so um, the hormones are FSH or a follicle-stimulating hormone or a little bit of LH activity, which is the other hormone produced by the pituitary. And so um, these... um, uh, examples of these medications include medicines such as folistim or gonalef or menopure um, or um, um, Brevel. And these are the most commonly used ones in the U.S. And they're all basically a similar class of drugs. Um, these have to be differentiated from um, HCG injection we often use to trigger ovulation in clomid cycles, which uh, that would be um, HCG injection or Novarel or Ovidrel or those medications, which is just um, a hormonal trigger to stimulate um, in ovulation with the oral medication cycle. So those are the two kind of class of drugs we talk about. There's other medicines we use in conjunction with in vitro fertilization that um, facilitate delaying um, ovulation so the we, the physicians, have better control over the timing of that. But those medications um, are GnRH agonists or GnRH antagonists, and those do not actually stimulate the ovary. They just help facilitate the IVF cycle. All right, and, and now let's talk about some of, you've already alluded to uh, some of the disadvantages of a uh, of the medical, IU, um, medical, medicated, injectable medicated with gonadotropins, IUI uh, cycle. Dr. Pfeiffer, thank you so much for being You're with welcome. us You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Zyman, one of the disadvantages we just talked about were the um, these gonadotropins um, stimulate ovulation. And uh, it's so certainly one of the things that they're going to do is in an ideal world, they would stimulate just one or two follicles. But how often does that happen, that you can stimulate it to just, uh, just the, to, to the right amount of follicles? Do you have any control over that? Or are you automatically going to run the risk of stimulating um, eight, nine, ten follicles? No. I, I think that you can do this very safely. And fortunately, there's been a very nice trend in our field to be very conservative with what we call injectable or gonadotropin cycles. And part of this is done by getting um, an assessment of 
a woman's egg reserve, you can do an ultrasound to count her small ovarian follicles, which contain the eggs. That's something called an antral follicle count. And you can do some baseline egg reserve testing to get a sense of whether she's likely to over-respond or potentially under-respond to these medications. And the approach from a physician's standpoint is to start with a very small dose and monitor very closely and assess a woman's response to that dose by checking her serum estrogen levels and uh, ongoing ultrasounds of the ovary to see how the follicles are growing. And with a very conservative dosing uh, approach, most of the time you can do this in a very controlled way and to achieve the goal, which is what you alluded to, Ms. Davenport, would be the um, two, three follicles, maybe four follicles that are getting into mature range. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of this has to do with a woman's... um, age as well. So if she is younger, we want to be more conservative and use a smaller dose and potentially even trigger the ovulation of the the egg sooner rather than letting them grow farther into maturity where we'd be more likely to have uh, more eggs that would be released on a woman who is in the older age ranges for, um, for reproduction over 40 years old, 41, 42, 43 years of age, we may be a little more aggressive and feel a little more comfortable about seeing four or five uh, eggs being released in these situations. Again, because the uh, the egg quality will not be as good and there the chance that the, uh, multiple pregnancy would occur would be much lower. So I do feel that it, it can be done in a very controlled setting. However, it's still very risky. And it, it, you never know for sure. You cannot 100% predict whether or not someone could have an, uh, an overly strong response. And I think to protect from that, two things always have to happen. One would be to make sure that patients know that they should that the cycle may be canceled, and that's another risk of doing these these injectable medications, and that they really shouldn't have any sperm exposure or unprotected intercourse until we know that that they're in a safe range, and uh, that's another important part of all this. And one possibility we should throw out is the possibility of turning the uh, uh, injectable medicated IUI cycle into an IVF cycle if you notice if you. You do an ultrasound, you see, oh, my God, there's a lot of, of, of follicles here. Um, is that possible, and is it usually, is, is that an option, or are there disadvantages to that because of the way the cycle has been has progressed? That is a possibility. Um, it, it, we think of that as a salvage approach. Uh, certainly that isn't that wouldn't be the objective from the beginning of the cycle, but if there is a scenario, you are conservative um, with the approach to the gonadotropin or the injectable dosing, and you find that a woman is responding very strongly and she's already invested a lot of time and energy and potentially money in her medications, that would be an option. Um, it It is not the ideal situation in that there are steps that we take in an in vitro fertilization cycle to prevent eggs from ovulating prematurely that we don't routinely do in these injectable cycles. And we do a few maneuvers with birth control pills or estrogen patches 
or timing the start of the um, of the IVF cycle to synchronize the growth of the eggs and the follicles so that when we're ready to collect the eggs, as many as possible are mature, rather there being a range of immature eggs and, and more uh, post-mature or older or beyond mature eggs. Mm-hmm. So those are the two disadvantages to converting uh, uh, an IUI cycle or an injectable cycle into an IVF, but it certainly can be done. The other part of that is is the cost difference between doing an injectable cycle and an IVF cycle. And if insurance is covering the treatment cycle, that might be an option for people, but some people may not be prepared for the large difference in cost between the two treatment options. Exactly. And just that people have a... Uh those who have not gone through this will have a a range we've uh, we've talked a couple of times about that one of the the really hard position that that a patient is in is that it is not inexpensive to do the injectable uh IUI cycle so roughly speaking what would be a range of how much somebody would have spent on their medications um well, let's just say medication. Well, let's say no medication and uh, and, and cost for monitoring at the doctors because that would, from that, you know, from the patient's standpoint, it's a total cost um, if they have to cancel a medicated cycle. Can you just give us a, a, a range in there? It really varies. Uh, it depends, again, if they're using injectable medications or Clomid. Yeah, I'm and speaking of injectables. Injectables. Yeah, not, and not then if, okay, excellent. And if they're planning insemination or not. But in general, it, the range would be something from $1,000, $1,500, up to $4,000. But if a woman is requiring very high doses of medications, again, based on her egg reserve or potentially her age, it could be even more expensive than that. I mean, we could be talking about several thousand dollars more than that $4,000 figure. So that would be the unusual case. But you're, you're typically talking about several thousand dollars for, for patients right. to do these treatment cycles. So from a patient's standpoint, and often they are uh, paying for this out of pocket. There are not that many states. We've done a number of shows on this talking about insurance issues. But uh, So I recommend that the readers can go back. We also have um, a, um, um, resources on our site under affording infertility treatment uh, talking about the insurance issue. But uh, assuming that insurance is not paying for it, then uh, people are paying out of pocket, and so it puts – puts a lot of pressure, but as you point out, um, a a doctor can do a lot of preparing in advance so that people are prepared for this. Now what I want to talk about are are two fascinating trials, the one that I uh, am, uh, one of which was presented at ASRM recently, and the other one I think is a little older, Um, comparing um, medicated, injectable medicated IUIs with going straight to IVF, and uh, as I understand it, it, it they, they compared it on a number of levels, including cost and obviously success rate, which is ultimately what most people care about. So could you tell us uh, about these studies, both of which I believe were done at Boston IVF? Correct. Um, the the studies, they have there are two names, and I'll, I'll give you the acronyms of them just, to, just so we can refer to them that way. One of the, the, the trials is called the FAST trial, and that, that is an acronym for the Fast Track and Standard Treatment, that is, for fertility um, trial. And the other trial is um, called the FORTY trial, and that is an acronym describing women typically who are over 40 or over um, 38 years of age who are doing um, different uh, treatment options for fertility. 
And this um, the this research was the lead author for both of these um, research um, trials uh, was is Richard Reindoller and uh, he used uh, the bulk of patients for both of these trials um, at Boston IVF and so that's why we have a lot of familiarity with the trial and uh, um, certainly are, are very pleased with with the findings of the trial and what trials and what the first trial the FAST trial was designed to answer the question. If you are a patient and you have unexplained infertility and you're 21 to 39 years of age, what is the best approach from a chance of getting pregnant perspective, um, from a time to pregnancy perspective, and cost perspective for you? Is it best to do Clomid first? Is it best to do Clomid and then IUI first? Or is it best to do Clomid and then if that doesn't work, go on to IVF? And um, just to sort of um, try to summarize the, the, the treatment arms in this trial, uh, again, that is how the trial was structured, was to look at patients who did the more what they called the uh, conventional arm, where this is what historically was done for patients, is they would do one cycle of Clomid with insemination. If that didn't work, they would go on and do up to three cycles of Clomid. And if that didn't work, they would move on to the next conventional step in treatment, which would be the injectables combined with insemination, do that for up to three cycles. And then if that didn't work, go on to IVF. The accelerated arm of the trial was to say, well, if you find yourself in the situation that you do Clomid for three cycles with insemination, it doesn't work, should, what happens if you go directly to IVF at that point? And that's the accelerated or the fast arm of the trial. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that, interestingly, um, people um, got pregnant at a quicker rate if they went in the fast trial. So there was less time to pregnancy. It took them eight months on average instead of 11 months on average that each couple would save overall about $2,000 at the end of the day if they went in the fast arm and did the IVF after Clomid. And interestingly, more couples ended up with a live birth in the fast arm. So it was a very, very um, revolutionary study to help us decide a paradigm on how to treat our patients. And interestingly, as the trial has been going on, that, that trend or what the, the trial found out has become more or less the trend in how we manage um, these decisions for our patients. And I find that absolutely fascinating. One question I always ask when we're talking about any any research: How large of a study? How many patients? This was a very large study, and this what made this is what made this study so so amazing. Really, is that they looked at over 200 people, close to 200 couples in each arm, in the fast arm, and the the or the accelerated arm, and in the conventional arm. So we're talking about you know 500 couples, and the the a single center was used to do this trial. So it was Boston IVF was the center that was used. So instead of compiling data mm -hmm. from multiple fertility centers, it was all focused in one center, which allowed things to be more normalized and allowed the data to be more helpful in terms of it being consistent. So it was it was in a one very embryology large lab, one correct yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. I can see that. Um, okay, so. The, the, just to recap, uh, it was a large study, and it was for patients 21 to 39. And if they, they the two groups, the first group would be the, the uh, triclomid, then try, uh, I assume, clomid with uh, uh, insemination, IUI, and then try up to three 
uh, cycles of injectable medicated IUI and then move to IVF, which, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, is the standard, has been in the past the standard protocol. And that was that group, which was the standard, I guess, the control group, compared to the the, the fast track group, which is three cycles of Clomid uh, with insemination, and then IVF. Um, and and so what you found was that you had a higher pregnancy rate, a quicker pregnancy rate. What did you say, eight versus eleven months? Yes. And and I think the part that is going to be the most interesting to everyone. It ultimately saved money. And did you say up to like two to three thousand dollars? Yeah, over two thousand dollars across the board on average. You know, some for some people more, but the savings per couple was estimated to be about two thousand six hundred dollars. Explain how that works, because the the, the argument for many people uh, has always been the. Uh, I can't afford IVF, therefore that's why I'm doing the injectable with an IUI and why I will do multiple ones because I'm, I'm trying to avoid the IVF cost. So, so how does it work out that they ultimately saved money by, by not doing the less expensive of the treatments? Right. Well, the, this, this comes down to two things. One is that historically we always thought that injectables with insemination were much, was much more successful than it was. It was always estimated to have a 15 to 20 percent pregnancy rate. But more recent studies have found, and this study included, that the pregnancy rate is closer to 10 percent per cycle. And that approximates the success rate with Clomid. So what they found in this study is that the chance of pregnancy per cycle with the Clomid was 7.6% or or roughly 8%. And the pregnancy rate with the injectable cycles um, was only 9.8%. So it wasn't as much of a benefit. The second part of this is that FSH IUI is much more expensive than Clomid. Clomid is a very affordable pill. It costs less than $100 typically a month to do to use Clomid. And so you're comparing that to a very expensive treatment option. We talked about the, the medications and the cost. Um, and you can see that there's a big difference in expense in terms of the investment for the, the injectables compared to the Clomid. So that's part of the reason. The second thing is that we know, as I mentioned, the, the study that we've done at, um, at Boston IVF in the past looking at Clomid, that after a certain point when you've done repeated Clomid cycles, the chance of success goes down. So you're not going to get as much benefit. So to, to come back to your initial question, the issue is that once you've tried Clomid several times, and of course we're all in support of a, a more conservative method of fertility treatment and cost-effective method for patients when they're first embarking on fertility treatment and they're young, but once that hasn't worked, you're probably better off to invest your money or invest your time or even your hopes in IVF at that point, and that, that's really what the study's showing. And And the reality is, uh, an injectable medicated IUI cycle is not cheap. Um, j- again, from the from a comparison standpoint, um, we know you just compared it to uh, Clomid, and Clomid would be, I mean, I think it's even a generic Clomid. So, I mean, it could be considered, uh, well, I guess that would be clomiphene citrate, but so that could be quite affordable, and there's not a great deal of monitoring that has to go on. So it, it's a very affordable option. Uh, the And we've talked about that, the medication alone on a uh, medicated uh, injectable medicated IUI cycle is going to be up to uh, the average probably what three to four thousand, um, and that doesn't 
include the um, monitoring cost, which I don't know how much that would be. <clears throat> I've got some of those figures, but I don't have them in front of me. Uh, versus a IVF cycle, which um, you know, uh, fifteen thousand probably. Correct. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So the uh, the medicated IUI. What would it be including? Uh, just a rough average uh, with monitoring uh, and meds, the whole thing, so that so people are seeing where they're saving. Why it's three of them would add up uh, pretty quickly to right. fifty bucks. Yeah, it could be anywhere from you know two thousand dollars to seven thousand dollars. That's the that would be the range you would expect for. Right. And, and you know you've got to be monitored very carefully with mm-hmm. these drugs, so it's Correct. not just a matter of taking your shots. And going in for an insemination, right. it, it, you know, it's not. Well, it, and I do want to hear about the 40 trial. But before we do that, again, we would be remiss if we don't talk about uh, a multiple birth rates. So, and I have no doubt that that was also tracked in the FAST uh, trial. So, uh, was there a difference between the, the the two groups that were being compared in the number of multiple births? Right. Well, in Dr. Reindler's trial. Fortunately, the error of high-order multiples and seeing high rates of that had already been passed. And so at Boston IVF, we're very conservative with the injectable cycles. So we've, we've, we've fortunately been able to experience very low high-order multiples. So in this trial, we didn't see a difference. Um, it was very similar, and it was very low in both. And that was probably because the gonadotropin insemination treatment cycles were handled in a very conservative way. And so, when you say that included twins, correct? You, you yes. were, so your so your twin rate was similar between the two groups, but correct. that again, right? Know, it was about twenty percent, twenty one percent versus twenty three percent in the two arms, and the high order multiples were there were only five triplets reported in the whole study, three were in one arm and two were in the other. So similar. Um, I would have to wonder if that might be different in centers that aren't as conservative with their uh, medicated IUIs, but then again, that's speculation, and, and we shouldn't go there. Well, that's an important point, though, because this, this trial was done in Massachusetts, and we have uh, Massachusetts has an infertility mandate where insurance covers infertility services, which, which is unlike most states throughout the country. That and so it is, a, it is a very different situation in terms of cost analysis and um, you know, decisions in terms of what treatment uh, patients select uh, based on their insurance versus you know, maybe necessarily cost. Well, uh, I'm not sure I followed exactly that. Yes, you were very fortunate to be in Massachusetts where you have insurance coverage mandated. Um, How does insurance coverage mandate affect people's decisions when it comes – how does it affect the twin rate, which I think is how you were uh, speaking of it, and in particular, how does it affect the – does it affect – how conservative uh, people, uh, both doctors and patients, are willing to be with their uh, injectable medicated IUI cycle? I don't know if there's any data to support this, but there is there is some sort of um, sentiment behind this being our life savings. Um, please don't cancel this cycle. Um, this is our only chance. And I don't know if that truly affects high-order multiples because I've I've always practiced in Massachusetts where we where I, I my experience has been we've been very conservative with 
the the rate of high order multiples. So I don't know if that affects it or not, but that's a possibility in terms of using this trial um, uh, in terms of um, the, the the paradigm basically or the decision making in terms of what treatment to do. The other part of it is that um, some of the insurance companies have requirements. And um, this trial was very instrumental in changing uh, some of the uh, fertility uh, requirements or fertility treatment requirements from the insurance company's standpoint in that uh, instead of requiring multiple cycles of Clomid IUI, then FSH IUI, and then IVF, which used to be the standard of care, this trial um, really revolutionized that approach. And many insurance companies allow the physicians and the patients to decide which which method or which uh, treatment they can choose. They don't have to step through one um, and then take on, uh, go on to the next step before they can move on to IVF. Well, you took the question right out of my mouth because uh, I and I was going to ask how many insurance companies have changed because you are exactly right that the, the one of the driving forces, although certainly not the major, the major force because not that many people have insurance coverage, but um, one of the driving forces to the what was perceived as the more conservative approach, but I think it might have only been more conservative from the financial standpoint, not not when you look at the the total cost and when you include health uh, issues associated to the mother and child of multiple preg- uh, multiple uh, gestations. But um, insurance companies require uh, people to go through a certain amount of, of injectable medicated IUI cycles, uh, and you're saying that that is now changing. You're seeing that change. This changed dramatically, and it changed as the trial was going on because preliminary, I believe, and I don't know what the incentive was from the insurance standpoint, but my my sense, being you know a provider at at Boston IVF and seeing these results unfold, was that the you know Dr. Reindel's trial had a lot to do with that, and it became clear that it wasn't necessarily in the best interest of the patient um, to to do all these cycles of gonadotropins with insemination before moving on to IVF. And so now all the major insurers have, have reduced their requirements, and some don't have any at all in terms of gonadotropin IUI cycles before moving on to IVF. Talk about uh, a, a um, science in action. Right, <laughs> Where exactly. it actually affects policy. Now, this trial... Uh, uh, was on for women only up to the age of 39. The 40 trial uh, picked up. I don't know if it was in, intended to pick up, but it, but it certainly was focusing on older women, women uh, 38 and up or above 38, so 39 and up. Um, what did that trial find? That trial was looking at um, women, as you said, um, 38 years and older, and the they specifically looked at ages 38 to 41 and then women who were 42 and 43 years of age. And the question there was, if you're a patient in that age category, what kind of outcomes and pregnancy rates would you expect if you did Clomid insemination and then went to IVF, or did gonadotropins and insemination and then went to IVF, or opted to go directly to IVF. And again, what's interesting is that this trial sort of mirrored what we saw with the, the younger couple, the younger patients in the FAST trial, in that we saw some benefit of moving more quickly to um, aggressive therapy or um, IVF. And so they saw quite nice success rates and pregnancy rates with patients who elected to go directly to IVF in that arm. So there's certainly some support based on this trial um, to choose that as an option. Um, That may may not be the option for everyone. 
some people may not be unco- may be uncomfortable with that idea of going directly to IVF and still may want to choose conservative therapy first. But certainly, if that makes sense for a patient um, and uh, based on their presentation and their 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 desires to get pregnant and what their objectives are, there might be there's a lot of um, support for that for that movement in terms of going directly to IVF. I would have thought that you would have seen even more dramatic results in older women because of the um the fact that you're wasting time if assuming that assuming that the i the injectable iui if if it is not successful you've got i don't know uh, at least a month but, but most more likely a couple of months invested in that cycle so it seems like that you would see that it would be even uh, a, a more significant, but or was it more significant the the differences or no? Yes, I mean, and we saw you saw lower chances of success with Clomid and with FSHIUI. So they saw just seven percent chance for pregnancy per cycle, um, seven to eight percent with both of those arms, Clomid and the FSHIUI, and and twenty four percent chance for pregnancy with IVF. So that is the big concern: is that are you going to be using up your precious fertility window? Mm-hmm. Um, while you try these more conservative therapies, and so it may be that uh, it, you're much better off going directly to IVF, certainly in the uh, in the older age categories. Uh, we just got we've got two uh, email questions that have come in, um, and I, I I want to just try to quickly get them in before our time is up. This is from Allie. How effective is an IUI uh, that's intrauterine insemination with Clomid, and is it more effective than just Clomid with sex? Um yeah, so okay, go ahead. Can we That's a yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um there isn't a huge difference between insemination um compared to timed intercourse um in the absence of any abnormal sperm parameters. Uh there's a lot of literature on this subject and it's it's highly debated the the benefits of doing an insemination versus timed intercourse. I think in part it depends on um the couple and what they wish to do um and the cost and how much, you know, the added intervention and cost of doing the insemination and what the added pregnancy rate, a pregnancy success rate, which may be very small, um, means to that person. So it's, it's a, it, it may not be as much of a difference in terms of chance of success as, as, as people may think. And the feeling of, of, it, it, uh, of it being less medicalized is, is, I think, for a lot of people, at least trying it, or at least we hear from a lot of people, I should say that, at least trying it with just timed intercourse, uh, at least to begin, uh, although as you point out, you need to be aware that after three cycles of, of, of uh, clomiphene citrate, you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, the, the effectiveness goes down. But I do know that uh, at least for some people, uh, keeping it, it feels more natural if, um, if that is a correct word to use here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's where, uh, and patients often feel helpless and feel like they don't have much control when they're dealing with fertility. And, and this is one aspect where patients can decide you know, whether they choose to do insemination. Maybe for them that feels more comforting because they know the sperm is getting to the right spot right. at the right time and they don't have the stress of intercourse where others don't like the fact that it feels so unnatural and so interventional and they're not ready for that level of you know, uh, medical intervention. And so, yes, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Well, what's nice is what I hear you saying is that it's so individual. I mean, and, and who are any of one of us to say that which one is the, is the better as far as uh, uh, the more normal or the more natural approach because people can feel quite differently. 
Um, just very quickly, this is from Rhonda. She says, I know it isn't the topic for today's show exactly, but can you please ask your expert if Robitussin helps at all? We've covered this one before, but I will, I will ask it very quickly. Um, the, taking Robitussin uh, with timed intercourse, I think is what she means. Yes, um, Robitussin, I don't know that it makes a huge difference. I don't know that it hurts. Um, certainly we wouldn't want you to take the Robitussin with the alcohol in it um, because we wouldn't want that alcohol exposure as you're, you're conceiving. Um, but uh, there hasn't been extensive studies that I'm aware of uh, to answer this question. So uh, I, I, I don't have much more of an answer than that. I apologize. No, that's fine. That's that is uh, that's fine. Thank you so much. All right, well, we have come to the end of our hour. Thank you so much, Dr. Allison Zyman and, and previously Dr. Samantha Pfeiffer for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Um, for all of you who have more questions the, can, or, or might want more information about Dr. Zyman, you can go to the Boston IVF.com website. There is information on that site about both of these. Actually, I didn't see the 40 trial, but I assume it's up there as well on your site. I'm not, yes, I think because well, it's still in preparation phase because it's been presenting it as an abstract form at this point. Mm-hmm. So it may not be on there. I, I don't know that it. Uh, it may not be on there, but uh, there was information on the uh, the faster trial on uh, that uh, website as well, and we will try to get some information. I don't believe we have it on our infertility research page, but we will do a uh, a quick summary. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Zyman, I may email you and ask for if you could have a uh, if you could send me uh, uh, the abstract. Um, for yes, the I'll absolutely do that. And for re- for listeners who want to look it up, Richard Reindoller is the lead author, and that would be probably the easiest way to try to find um, this publication. Yeah, and, the, and we'll try to get it up on our uh, research page and a, a brief summary of that as well. Thank you so much. This show will be archived on the 2012 Big List at the radio page of creatingafamily.org. It's also available for a download as a podcast from iTunes. And the easiest way to find it on iTunes is to use the iTunes button on our radio page. To stay in touch with the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic, sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page at our website, creatingafamily.org. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.